0: Our reading this evening is on page 1178, One one seven eight, that's Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. <coughs> page 1178. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will always have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me, yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to, be, to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. And I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you, again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer. For him since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have this is the word of the Lord
1: our gracious Heavenly Father we've just sung I will not boast in anything no gifts no power no wisdom but I will boast in Jesus Christ we pray, our Father, as we look at your word now, as we see Paul boasting in Christ alone, please, by your grace, would you drive us to do the same? And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, please do take a seat. And um, if you've closed it, turn up Philippians chapter 1. It's on page 1178, 1178, seven, rather. And um, you'll see on the back of the service sheets, we've got an outline. Three points, as usual, and uh, you'll see that's going to give us an idea of where we're going this evening. And I want to start this evening with a question, and that question is, what do you think the future looks like for a Christian in the UK? What would be the experience for a Christian in 10, 20, 30 years' time? Now, there will be the optimists amongst us, Uh, I'm always hopeful there are, and um, sorry about the dad joke, Um, you might be fairly positive uh, about the future, but I'm guessing for most of us, even if we are half glass full type of people, we expect a turbulent road ahead. Perhaps we have been a Christian for a while, and as we look over our lives, we can see the movement from Christianity being part of the fabric of society to now being opposed, even in the public square. And if you're honest, you're anxious about what your children or grandchildren might face. Or perhaps you sense a shift in the atmosphere at work or at college, and you don't, even fa- in fact, even share the, fa- the fact that you're a Christian. Or if you do, when, when the topic of faith comes up, y- you pray inside that people just wouldn't ask you about certain issues. Or perhaps you know the social media shame that comes from being branded a bigot on Twitter or Snapchat. And while you know deep down that you're not, you fear that one day you'll be called the same just because of your Christian beliefs. Or perhaps you look at the church in the UK and you see denominations that are fraught with conflict and numbers crashing through the floor and you worry what's going to happen. You hear of other churches around the world who have removed from their denominations, certain churches, for for holding to historic Christian teaching, and you worry that we might follow suit here. See, I'm guessing for lots of us, there are plenty of reasons why we worry about the future for Christianity and Christians, which is why we need the perspective this passage gives us, See, in this letter, Paul writes to a church that is uh, slap bang in the middle of a culture that is suspicious of Christian beliefs. And he writes to encourage them to stand firm, to not fear. And as we're going to see this evening, the way he does that is to speak about his own experience. And really, what he says about himself should turn us from fear in opposition to embracing it from fearing opposition to embracing it. Now, I realize that's a big thing to say, but I think that's what Paul encourages us to do. Now, how, we, how do we see that? How does Paul do this? Well, first of all, he looks to the past. He, he talks about what's happened. Then he looks to the future and thinks about what might happen to him. And then he turns to us in the present and gives us a response we should make. So let's have a look at those three points then. The, the past, the future, the present. Let's start with The past. And uh, see um, uh, this point here: that seeking to mute the gospel brings growth. Now you'll see uh, in the passage, if you close it, page one one seven eight, you'll see uh, Paul's mention of his chains uh, throughout the passage, uh, which tells us he's in prison. Now I don't know about you, but when we think of prison, we tend to think of the place where criminals go after trial. But actually, prison in the Roman Empire was somewhere you went to await trial. And you didn't stay in prison a very long time. You would either be released, punished, or executed. And as you can imagine, it was no hotel stay, even some of the hotels I've stayed at. (laughs) See, many would die from the conditions before trial. And when you faced trial, there was every chance you would end up with a one-way ticket to the gladiator ring. So I want you to put yourselves in the church's shoes at this point, you have your main leader of the church, the main spokesperson, in prison, with death, possibly around the corner, what would you be feeling? I mean, just uh, think back to the fuss over the summer with Mohammed Salah getting injured, and the blow that was for the Egyptian team, the things that were said about it, the disappointment it caused him, and the national side how all the optimism about Egypt just evaporated, and that was just a World Cup. How much more worrying to have your main apostle in chains in a Roman prison. And yet, look at what Paul says in verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. See, you would forgive Paul, wouldn't you, for for saying things have been hard, but instead he rejoices because the gospel has advanced. Now, how has the gospel done that when he's in prison? Well, look at verse 13. I find this really funny, I love it. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. So he explains that everyone in this prison has heard. See, they, they thought they were shutting up Paul, the opposite has happened. See, the, the soldiers in this type of prison, they would do um, four-hour shifts. So Paul was essentially a conveyor belt of soldiers coming into his prison cell. And you can just imagine, can't you, that the conversation that would take place. So what are you in for? Well, proclaiming that Jesus has risen from the dead. Okay, but, but what did you do? You must have uh, killed someone or at least done a little bit of insurrection. No, I just announced that Jesus is the Lord of all oh, so you're saying another Caesar? No, one that is even greater than Caesar. Even greater than Caesar? That's not possible. What, a, a god or something? Well, let me explain. Well, the commentators estimate that there would have been about 9,000 people in this palace guard. So that's almost a half-02 arena. And Paul says they've all heard And not just them, everyone outside has heard, these soldiers have gone home, they've sat around uh, the telly, eaten a uh, microwave meal, and and they've chatted about the conversation they've had with Paul. They spoke to the shop owners as they've gone to get the morning paper. And the gospel throughout the palace guard and outside has spread. And it's not just Paul. Verse 14 says that other Christians are much more bold. See, Paul's determination to to proclaim Christ, even under the direst of circumstances, has given them a shot in the arm. Now, sure, he says, some are preaching out of wrong motives, as a chance to further personal ambition, but at least Christ is being proclaimed. Now, what would drive Paul to this response? He is in a Roman prison. You'd expect it to be a cause for despair. Any day could be his last. And yet he rejoices. What 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 is going on? Well, look at verse twelve. It's because the gospel is advanced. And verse eighteen is because Christ is preached. See, here we have a man who is driven by one goal and one goal alone to make Jesus Christ known. See, when he's free, he's he's going around proclaiming Jesus. But when he's in prison, he's staying put and proclaiming Jesus. See, Paul knows that God is bigger than the limits of his situation, that whether he's free or imprisoned, he is convinced that God will make the gospel known. He's absolutely committed to it. A few years back, I um, spent some time in Uganda, and um, when I was there, I learned of one of the major events in Uganda's history, and it involved the killing of 45 young men who served in the king's court. And this happened about 100 years ago. See, these men had been employed in the king's court, and um, they were employed, frankly, to provide sexual services to the palace and its visitors. But they had converted to Christianity through the missionaries going over. And uh, their lives changed, as you might imagine. And the story goes that the king got back one evening and wanted their services, but they refused. And in a fit of rage, he ordered their executions. And the men, mostly 15 to 30 years old, I guess catching a lot of us in that age bracket, they were marched to a fire. And they were ordered to renounce their Christian faith. And when they refused, they were burnt together. And the story was striking, not just because of the details, but because of the effect it had had. See, I was staying um, at a Bible college, And the Bible college was built on the place where these guys died. And this Bible college was training hundreds and thousands of people to go and proclaim the gospel all over Uganda and beyond. And their tragic story had inspired millions. Each year, hundreds and thousands. Look it up, it's uh, quite a sight. They they assemble where they died. And now the people who profess to be Christian in that country make up 85% of the population you see the point? The gospel looked like it was being closed down, being silenced, but God took this terrible situation and made it even louder. And Paul knows this. So, rather than despairing in a prison cell, he seeks to make Christ known. You say to yourself, well, that's okay, Paul, that's okay for you at the moment, But, but what if the worst happens? Well, that's where he turns his attention to under our second point. He turns to the future. And um, when you look at Paul here, you see that he's not naive about the future. He knows that the gladiator ring might await him. But even that, we're told, in verse 18, is a cause for rejoicing. Now, it's hard to get your head around, isn't it? Why rejoice when you know that any day might be your last? Well, look at verse 20. He says this, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, that's quite a dense verse. It needs a little bit of unpacking, so just bear with me a second. See, when Paul speaks about hope here, he's talking about something that he knows will happen. See, in English, um, the word hope tends to to describe something that might or might not happen, like, I I hope for snow at Christmas. But actually, in the New Testament, hope is something that is certain to happen, like, I hope to wake up on the 25th of December and it would be Christmas Day. And what he hopes in is that he will not be ashamed. Now, again, that's an unusual word to use, but um, it's the idea of not falling short of that hope, of not being let down on the way to grasping it. So, if I tried to run a marathon, um, if I tried now, I might hope to do it, I might hope to finish. But actually, with no training, I can guarantee you I would be ashamed as I collapse in a fit of breathlessness after the first mile. But Paul says he will never be ashamed. He will never fall short of the hope that is promised him. Now, why is that? Well, he knows that because of the cross, if he dies, he goes to be with Christ. But he also knows that if he lives, Jesus will use him to make him known. And because of his security in Christ, Paul sounds, let's be honest, he sounds more like an excited child in a sweet shop rather than a man languishing in a prison cell. See, it's quite dense, isn't it? But in this section, he flips between two possible outcomes. In verse 22, you see one of them. For if I am to go on living in the body, if I'm going to stay alive, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. So if he stays alive, he can make Christ more known. And if he does that, we're told in verse 26, Christ will get more praise. But in verse 23, he says this, I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. See, he knows that death means he'd be with Christ in an instant, and that is no comparison. Now, this isn't Paul kind of making the best of a bad situation, or trying to look for positives when there really aren't any. No, this is a man who understands that in any outcome, Jesus is working for his good. No matter what comes, freedom, death, it's win-win for Paul. Uh, John Christotum, uh, he's a a Christian who lived in the 4th century. I I swear that my illustrations are getting further and further back. He's a a Christian from the 4th century. And um, he was uh, brought before the Roman uh, emperor uh, during a period of persecution. And the emperor called uh, John Christotum uh, to renounce Christ. And he threatened this. He said, I'll banish you from the country, your father's land. And Christotum replied you cannot. The whole world is my father's land. The emperor said, well, I'll take away your property. Christotum said, you cannot. My treasures are in heaven. So the emperor said, well, I'll take you to a place of solitary confinement where there's not a friend to speak to. And Christotum replied, you cannot. I have a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And the emperor finally said, I will take away your life. And Christotum said, you cannot. My life is hid with God in Christ. See, the moment you become Christ, you have security in death, a new goal in this life. There's nothing to fear in the grave, nothing. This side of the cross, death has lost its sting. There is now no condemnation in Christ. We have passed from death to life. And this side of the cross, God has committed himself in this world to making Jesus Christ known the only reason the world hasn't been wrapped up yet. So if Jesus is your goal, nothing, nothing can make you ashamed. Nothing can ultimately disappoint you. I don't know about you, but it's very easy, isn't it, when facing setbacks. <coughs> so I kind of have that trigger response in your mind. And you think to yourself, what has happened, God? What are you doing? What's gotten wrong? What do I need to rectify? But Paul reminds us that it's not gone wrong, but so often that that response is because we suffer spiritual amnesia. We forget who we are. See, if we're in Jesus Christ, we have a new perspective. We know nothing can harm us. And if we're in Jesus, we know nothing can hamper God's purposes. Now, we've heard about Paul, but what about us? How does what Paul say about himself connect to us? Well, that's where we turn to in our final point, See, in verse 27, Paul says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And in fact, the word he uses there is the idea of living in light of your citizenship. Now, uh, we heard last week, didn't we, that Philippi was a a city where Romans would go to retire. Uh, You know how, I hope this isn't too rude, I know, uh, you know how um, the older people get, the the further towards the coast they tend to move. Well, that was, um, I hope that's not rude come and hit me afterwards. But it was no different, was it? Uh, It was no different in Philippi. People would leave the army, and they would go to live by the sea. And uh, they were granted Roman citizenship. Everyone who lived there were Roman citizens, and they were very, very proud of it. And in this clever twist, Paul takes that idea and appeals to their civic pride and says, live as a citizen, not just of Rome, but of Christ. Now, I happen to be a British citizen, and um, I have a passport with a very fetching photo in it. Come and see it afterwards. There we go. I was quite pleased with that one. (laughs) Only joking. Uh, Very fetching photo, and it it tells me that I'm a British citizen. And my British British citizenship is not something that can be taken away. See, because of my citizenship, I belong to a people. I belong to a nation. I have every right to enter that land, every right to come into the UK, and wherever I find myself, I have a people and somewhere to belong. Well, wherever Christians find themselves, they are to know they are citizens of Christ. Now, how does that idea help those in Philippi? Well, you'll see in verse 28 that they're being opposed by the culture, and you can just imagine, can't you, the sort of opposition that was taking place? And you can imagine what effect they must have had. These are very patriotic soldiers, people who have served the Roman Empire their whole lives, and suddenly they're having their loyalties questioned by the culture. So Paul says, know above all that you have your citizenship elsewhere, so stand firm in it. Now, to be a British citizen... Uh, Means I enjoy certain benefits. Uh, Apart from being asked about what I think about Brexit every time I go abroad, I get certain types of advantages. Uh, For example, it says in my passport that I get Her Britannic Majesty's Secretary of State's assistance and protection as may be necessary. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Well, it's the same for being a citizen of Christ. We get certain benefits. But actually, the benefit that Paul points out here is a bit of a surprise. Have a look at verse 29 and see if you can spot it. He says this For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. In fact, um, it's the idea that, that this suffering, this opposition, is granted to you as a gift, it's being gifted to you. It's a very strange thing to, to, to say. It's a strange way of putting things, isn't it? Suffering opposition certainly doesn't feel like a gift, and yet Paul says it is. Why is it? And why is that good news? Well, it's because suffering opposition is the hallmark for every Christian. It marks them out as a nation. See, in the next chapter we're going to see, over the next few weeks, that Paul goes on to speak about Jesus Christ, and we see that Jesus, in His very nature, is God. But He made Himself nothing. And He came to a people, not to be served by them, as you would expect, but to serve. And He served them by enduring suffering for their salvation. See, even though Jesus was God, He suffered death on a cross, He endured it willingly, to save a world that tried to silence him. And that is the pattern that Paul follows. He endures opposition so the gospel may be heard, so that he may save a world trying to silence him. And it is a pattern that every Christian is called to. We endure opposition so that the gospel may be heard, even by a world that tries to silence it. See, if you're suffering opposition, or if you encounter opposition in the future, it is a sign of your citizenship. See, just as my passport reminds me of my Britishness, so too does your suffering opposition remind you of Jesus' call on your life. I remember when I became a Christian back at university, and um, I I had some friends who were a kind of um, put out that I had suddenly changed from how I been before and not done uh, what they were doing. And I, through the grapevine, heard that things had been said about me, things like, he really shouldn't be a Christian, uh, given what he's like. And I remember as a young Christian, kind of panicking about that and thinking, oh my goodness, what's gone wrong? How am I going to put this right? But thankfully, I had an older and wiser Christian who told me, this is a good sign, Rob. Be encouraged. Hang in there. See, suffering opposition which this older Christian knew, is the pattern. Now, I don't know about you, but looking at Paul's perspective and looking at what the church is called to here has made me ask serious questions about my own perspective. See, in a culture where reputation counts for everything, opposition can be something that we want to avoid at all costs. Perhaps even outside these walls, we keep our faith to ourselves. For some of us, perhaps, opposition sends shivers down the spine as we contemplate what might lie on the horizon. For others of us, we perhaps are enjoying it now, but we wonder to what benefit. But Paul's example shows us we do not have to fear. See, if people try to mute the gospel, God will amplify it. If people try to harm Christians, it would only benefit them. Whatever happens, lose a job, lose a friend, lose a reputation. You will never be ashamed by Jesus Christ. So hold firm to your citizenship. Let's um, sketch out some implications as we close. If we're here tonight and we're not a Christian and we're not sure, we're looking into it, I-, I wonder what it is that drives you. See, all of us have a goal kind of beyond ourselves, don't we? We uh, want the career, we want the family, we, we want the home, the relationship, or something else. And those goals are, are okay. They, those goals sound Uh, good enough, but they're not secure. See, it doesn't take a lot, and they're lost in an instant. And roll them out far enough, and we see that the grave brings them to a crushing end. But here is a goal being set before you tonight. That will never fail you. See, if you come to Jesus Christ, He will never let you be ashamed, ultimately. He will never let you down. And if we're Christians, the question we need to ask is, is our goal on the right target? See, thinking about this, um, if our goal is anything other than Jesus Christ, we will fear suffering opposition. See, we fear suffering opposition because it will threaten our main goal. See, if we uh, live for job security or, or reputation or our livelihood, we're, we'll be tempted to, to pull back as soon as we encounter any opposition against those things. But make Jesus Christ your goal, and your goal alone, and nothing can touch you. There's good reason, isn't there, that, that verse 21 has become the kind of memory verse, or one of the favourite verses for Christians. Verse 21 says this, For to me to live is Christ, and die is gain. See, so it's a good reason this becomes so popular. It's because it captures what should be every single person's goal. Jesus Christ, to live for Him, knowing that gain awaits us. See, if we make Jesus Christ our goal in this life and the next, we will never lose out. It'd be good, wouldn't it, after this sermon to, as we're enjoying a coffee next door, to, to ask one another, is this our goal? And if it's not, what is instead, or what drifts into its place? And as we go away, to think, what would it look like this week on Monday morning to have Jesus Christ as my sole girl? Let's pray. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. We praise you, our gracious heavenly Father, that through Christ, we do not have to fear opposition. We pray, Father, that you would give us confidence of that new reality that Jesus Christ has, been, has brought in. So, Father, we would live for him and him alone. We confess, Father, so often our thoughts and goals drift onto other things. Forgive us for those things, Father. Help us to put them in the right place. And as we leave tonight, Father, please help us uh, to do as Paul says, to live out our heavenly citizenship. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.